Uh, this morning's reading is from Revelation 2, 12 to uh, 17. To the church in Pergamum, and so to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against uh, them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear the spirit that says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone uh, with a name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? We good? Um, to those of you who don't know me, um, my name's Nick. I'm not one of the pastors here, um, but as Steve has explained, in the absence of our pastors today, you guys get me, so um, please be kind. Um, um, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, um, it really is a privilege to be um, opening God's Word with you again this morning, um, and as Steve has already said, it's so great to see our brothers and sisters from Village South uh, with us this morning. Um, we love your faithfulness um, to the call to plant the church in South Belfast, but we also love it when you get to be back here um, with us. So uh, it's really great to see your faces. I'm going to pray for us before we start. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for another opportunity to gather together and worship in your presence. As we approach this passage this morning, send your spirit to help us. Our fallible, finite minds struggle to comprehend the weight of your glory revealed in passages like this one. So help us and speak powerfully to us this morning, we pray, that we'd be made ever more increasingly like your son. Amen. At 8 a.m. on February 1st, 2003, Space Shuttle Columbia, upon re-entering the Earth's atmosphere at 205,000 feet and traveling at 14,000 miles per hour, disintegrated, killing all seven crew members on board. The immediate cause of this accident was damage caused to a small area of the shuttle's wing, having been struck with a piece of protective foam from one of the shuttle's fuel cells during an otherwise uneventful launch. This little piece of foam, similar in structure to a polystyrene cup, had caused damage to the protective heatproof layer on the wing. As a result, as it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere, the shuttle was unable to withstand the 100,000 degree Fahrenheit temperatures that it was exposed to. A tragedy, a tragedy undoubtedly, but what became clear during the investigation which followed was that in the previous 113 shuttle missions, how many times do you think damage had been caused to a shuttle by a piece of protective foam? Any guesses? None? Zero? 113 times. In every previous shuttle mission, every single shuttle had experienced some degree of damage caused by falling foam from the protective layer covering the fuel cells. This was nothing new and nothing unexpected. And yet, despite calls from some engineers that this was a disaster waiting to happen, the organizational powers at NASA deemed that the damage caused in previous flights was tolerable. This phenomenon even got its own name. It became known as a normalized deviance. The danger had literally been normalized. Retired US Navy Admiral Harold Gemmon, who was tasked by President Bush to head the investigation into the accident, remarked that it was scary how the recurring events were incrementally characterized as less and less serious. Somehow, man seems to think that by putting a different label on a bad thing, he can diminish the danger of that bad thing. 
compromise, it can be seen in certain areas, kind of drastic consequences. And putting an acceptable label on something dangerous is the perfect recipe for disaster. And yet compromise and permissiveness, it would seem, are ever more increasingly the demands that society is placing on the church in the West today. A mutual respect of ideas and a shared understanding of each other's views are the, the, the self-proclaimed hallmarks that our society prides itself on. But we increasingly find ourselves in a context where a church that seeks to hold faithfully to the Word of God is seen by the outside world as a threat and an attack on liberalism. And so it's the topic of compromise which Jesus is addressing in this passage, his letter to the church at Pergamum. And Pergamum is the next stop in our journey around these seven churches that we began two weeks ago. It was the next stop on the Asia Minor postal route of the day. And while the churches in Ephesus and Smyrna, as we looked at over the previous two weeks, were known as the loveless and the suffering churches, the church in Pergamum, as we'll see, has become known as the, the permissive or the compromising church. And as Lucas unpacked for us over the previous two weeks, the letters written to these churches were not just written to those specific churches, but equally they're written for the church of today. The prologue of Revelation addresses it to God's servants, which addresses it to us just as much as it addresses it to its, intended, its original intended audience. So these letters contain not just a specific localized message, but one for all churches across all time, including ourselves here today. And throughout this book, we see repetition of themes and warnings that we see throughout the Bible. We see the same warnings and rebuke against the influences of Jezebel and Balaam seen centuries earlier in the Old Testament. But in the same way as these warnings appear over and over again, so it must be said that God in his mercy constantly repeats the great truth of salvation, even to us today. Lamentations 3.23 says that these truths are new every morning. And so the promised blessings, as well as those warnings that we see throughout Revelation, are not just for the seven churches but they're for us today if we hear and follow the teaching that it contains. And with that in mind, Sinclair Ferguson suggests that it's helpful maybe for us to place ourselves in the shoes of the Christians in Pergamum. Being third on the list of the seven churches, they probably enjoyed the benefit of hearing Christ's letters to the churches in Ephesus and Smyrna before hearing for themselves what Christ had to say about their church. How would we feel as a church this morning, knowing that we were about to hear exactly what Jesus thought of our church? As with the previous letters in this series, the letter to the church in Pergamum follows the same kind of structure, the same pattern, and so we're going to explore it using the same headings that we've used for the, the previous two letters. Firstly, we will see Christ giving an authoritative introduction he introduces himself and his authority and his glory as described in Revelation chapter 1. We'll then see Christ's all-knowing evaluation of the church. And this has been in the form of both criticism and commendation so far. And it's all-knowing because it comes from Jesus. We'll then see an appropriate exhortation, an important command or instruction in response to this evaluation. And then, finally, we will explore Jesus' awe-inspiring conclusion that he gives to his letter, one which will further display his glory through promised blessings to those who overcome. But before we delve into that kind of framework, let's briefly just cover a bit of background on Pergamum. Uh, we don't have the map that Lucas was using last week, but uh, Pergamum was about 55 miles north of Smyrna, um, where we explored last week. Um, and as we saw on the, the, the map of those seven churches, it was the most northerly point in the kingdom of Asia Minor. It sits kind of in the point of like a little arrow formation of the seven churches. Um, and although it was badly situated for commerce and trade and communication, it was to all intents and purposes a state capital. If we look at Ephesus as the New York of Asia Minor, then Pergamum was the Washington. It was where the Roman Empire had its seat of government. It was where the official center of worship to the emperor was. And eventually it boasted several temples dedicated to the emperor himself. Culturally, 
The city was recognized as a center of learning and progressive thinking. It possessed one of the greatest libraries in the whole world with over 200,000 books back then. The word which we still use for parchment in the English language comes from the word Pergamum as a result of a material devised in that city to replace papyrus. Pergamum was also a city of religious pluralism and as well as being the center for Roman imperial worship, the city was also littered with idols and altars to pagan and Greek gods. Overlooking the city was a huge altar to the Greek god Zeus, still preserved to this day, and it sat among several other monuments to the Roman gods throughout the city. There was even a temple to Asclepius, the Greek god of healing, the symbol for which is the serpent that we still see on many kind of medical and hospital signage and imagery to this day. And in many ways, this impressive and progressive city, with its religious pluralism and its existence of many differing worldviews, made for a society and a culture that, as we will see, was not a million miles removed from the one in which we find ourselves today. So what then does our Lord Jesus Christ have to say to the church that found itself here? Firstly, we'll see Christ's authoritative introduction. So read with me verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now this draws straight away um, as Christ introduces himself in this letter um, to the image of the glorified Christ that we see in chapter 1, verse 16. There it reads, in his right hand he held seven stars from his from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Here we see our risen Lord Jesus Christ characterized by judgment. This description of Jesus points us to the authority of his word, and in doing so, it's no strange picture. Many of us will know that throughout Scripture, God's Word is commonly described as a sword and as working like a sword. So it's imagery that we should be familiar with. Examples of this can be seen in uh, Acts chapter 2, following Peter's message at Pentecost. Um, those who heard were said to have been cut to the heart. In Paul's letter to the Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 12, he says, For the Word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This sword, the Word of God, is sharp, and it cuts cleanly. John Stott writes that it both cuts and it cures. It hurts and it heals. It's both an instrument of life and an instrument of death. And while at this time in Pergamum, Rome wielded a mighty sword on earth, Jesus wielded a mightier sword from heaven, the only sword that the church should truly fear. But this idea of the Word of God being like a sword, even a sword of judgment, goes back further and is rooted in messianic prophecy, as we can see in Isaiah 11:4. But with the righteous he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. As the resurrected, glorified Christ begins to address the church in Pergamum with these words, Jesus is affirming and claiming his judicial authority. He presents himself as the one who is the final judge and reminding us that judgment lies in his hands only. The sword is the symbol of the Word of God and the truth that He has spoken, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword because it can pierce the inmost region of a man's spiritual being. It's true, it's trustworthy, it's infallible, and it's inerrant, and it's the authority with which Christ will return to judge the world. And so as Revelation frequently reads, anyone who has an ear, let him hear. But this picture of, of, of Christ's authority and of his judgment is not the only thing that Jesus states in the introduction to his letter. Having just identified himself to the church, 
Jesus then continues with a similar pattern whereby he marks each letter with a uniqueness directly relevant to the church that he's writing to. A statement that would leave the church in Pergamum in no doubt that Christ was in fact addressing them. And so the first half of verse 13 reads, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Here, Christ is revealing that he knows our circumstances in intimate detail. Jesus is not merely saying, I know geographically where you dwell. He's saying, I know the intimate and intricate details of the situation that you find yourself in. To Ephesus, he wrote, I know your works. To Smyrna, he wrote, I know your tribulations. And to Pergamum, he now writes, I know where you dwell. And it's only the Lord who can say with this authority, I know, in a way which, as we will see, brings real encouragement and comfort and meaning to our situations. Now, there's been much speculation as to what is meant by the phrase where Satan's throne is. As we've kind of already covered in Pergamum, there was extensive worship of Greek gods and idols, but even bigger was paganism and Roman imperial worship. Pergamum was obsessed with a love of state, and a deep sense of patriotism at this time had crossed into what was nothing other than idolatry. In Pergamum, only Caesar was Lord. Sure, you could follow Jesus, but only if your Jesus came second to Caesar. It's difficult to discern exactly what is meant by this phrase, but we can safely deduce that the political power, the cultural happenings, and the religious idolatry of Pergamum all work together to produce this climate which Christ describes as the place where Satan has his throne. Jesus regards his followers, his church in Pergamum, as living in a city which was the headquarters of resistance to himself. John Stott writes, it appears as though the Antichrist was more present than Christ in Pergamum. See, Satan was at work in Pergamum through the pressures of non-Christian society, pressures that we even face today in our society. He both persecuted and he seduced. The Christians in Pergamum were constantly faced not only with persecution and physical harm, but also more subtly with questions and temptations typical of worldliness in any age. Questions like, where's the harm in doing this? Everyone else does it, so why don't you? Does it really matter? H.B. Charles writes that Satan may have visited Ephesus, he may have worked in Smyrna, but he lived in Pergamum. He's not merely, as he was in Smyrna, a slanderer working through a group of Jews, but here he is seen as the ruler of this world, as John describes him in his gospel. And Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not wrestle in this world against flesh and blood. And this was the case for the Christians in Pergamum as it is for us today. This was somewhere where spiritual warfare continually confronted the Christians. And so Christ is outlining the severity of the situation that the church in Pergamum faced and found itself in, a reality that the church knew all too well. So what an immense comfort and encouragement it must have been to hear their risen Lord say the words, I know where you dwell. You see, for Christ to be able to say this, he needed to have a knowledge of the church that depended on his presence with the church. He knows the church and he knows where they dwell because he walks with them. He goes before them through all that they face. In this letter, we see that his intimate knowledge extends not only to what the church is doing or to the persecution they suffer, but the exact environment they find themselves in. Jesus says, I know the circumstance of the place where you find yourself. I know experientially what it's like to suffer what you're suffering, and, and worse, so much worse. I know what it's like to be tempted as you're being tempted. I know specifically where you dwell. 
but Christ's knowledge of our circumstances goes further yet. Where the Pergamene Christians found themselves was no accident, as is the case with ourselves here today. God had providentially orchestrated in his sovereignty that these Christians would find themselves in that place at that time. And just as was the case in Pergamum, whatever situation we find ourselves in, Christ knows. Whatever we will face tomorrow or this week, Christ knows. When you're ostracized in work for your beliefs, Christ knows. When you struggle as the only Christian in your worldly family, Christ knows. What valuable words to remember, church, when you find yourself in a situation where you know that following Christ will cost you something or already has cost you something. Your reputation, your health, your life. Jesus says, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell, and in my sovereignty, I know where I have placed you, and I know experientially what you're going through. The Northern Ireland may not begin to look like Smyrna anytime soon, with its intense persecution and the threat of physical harm that Christians faced. But in our lifetime, it's becoming ever increasingly like Pergamum. But let's not allow our circumstances to govern our devotion to Christ. Let's hold to the truth of Romans 8, which tells us that God is working all things for the good of those who love him and keep his commands. And so, having introduced himself and revealed his intimate knowledge of the situation the Pergamum Christians found themselves in, Jesus then delivers his all-knowing evaluation. And here we see a stark contrast between this letter and the preceding two. Kevin DeYoung states that if Ephesus was the church guilty of under-engaging with the world around it, the church in Pergamum was guilty of over-identifying with the world. However, having just revealed the severity of the, op the opposition faced by the Christians in Pergamum, Christ begins, as he did in his letter to the Ephesian church, with, com with commendation. He commends them this time on their faithfulness. You'll see verse 13 continues, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And again here we see for the sake of reinforcement once again, that little phrase where Satan dwells. And so the, the first words from Jesus, the one who we have seen has the sharp two-edged sword, were words of marvelous encouragement to the church in Pergamum. He praises them for the courage they have displayed. You dwell where Satan's throne is, the city overlooked by pagan religion, and yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even, as he says, in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed. The main strength of the church in Pergamum was that they maintained their witness to Jesus even in a time and a place where people didn't want Jesus. We're led to believe that persecution on this level was not widespread at Pergamum, but we encounter this character, Antipas, a believer who was killed for holding fast to the name of Christ. We don't know much about him. He might have been their pastor. He could have been an elder in the church. We, we just don't know. Maybe he was just someone in this church whose convictions were such that he was unwilling to compromise. Regardless of who he was, he was someone who stood firm and fully grasped what Paul meant when he said that to live is Christ and to die is gain. His death was brutal. History tells us that Antipas was roasted inside a brass bull. But listen to the words that Jesus uses to describe him. My faithful witness. This is the same phrase we see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, to describe Jesus himself. Antipas was so joined to Jesus in his suffering unto death 
that he is given the same name that is used to describe Jesus. Jesus immensely values those who have suffered unto death for his name. Jesus honored the Father in his death, and so Antipas honored Jesus in his. And this is serious, church. We see in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, just how, how being faithful to Christ even unto death is spiritually a matter of life or death. Matthew 10, 32 reads, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, there's persecution happening right now in the world. There's over 100,000 new martyrs every year. And statistics estimate that 90% of all people killed on the basis of religion are Christians. We must not forget about these people. And we must remember what the Scriptures teach us about being faithful even in death. Imagine for a minute that one of our brothers or sisters was martyred this week. Would we turn up here next Sunday? The church in Pergamum did exactly this. They were strong where the church in Ephesus was weak. They were bold in their witness. They were loyal to one another, and they held together to the name of Christ. In Pergamum, it was not popular to be a Christian, and yet the church did not renounce the name of Jesus, even when, as he says, they were in the place where Satan dwelt. However, this is the point at which the tone changes. The commendation ends. And in the letter to the Ephesians, Jesus had one thing against that church. In the letter to Smyrna, they can sit quite smugly because Jesus had nothing against them. But here in the letter to the church at Pergamum, we see this change of tone as Jesus reveals that he has a few things against them. Read with me verses 14 to 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So here Jesus is making it clear that there was something in the church in Pergamum that he was set against, and there were some people in the church in Pergamum who he was set against. He begins to unveil the spiritual compromise which had taken hold in this church. While Antipas had remained faithful, for some the temptation was too strong. Compromise crept in, lines became blurred. And too much tolerance and not enough discipline meant that the church, the difference between the church and the culture was almost non-existent. We can see this as being the opposite once again of the problem in Ephesus. And Michael Wilcock writes of how narrow the safe path is between the sins of tolerance and intolerance. As passionate and as faithful as the Christians in Pergamum were, they were undiscerning. And not all of them remained faithful. A group of compromisers in the church had emerged with a let's go along to get along attitude. A group who were happy to see the church doing what the world would applaud. Being permissive, being open-minded, being progressive as the world would see it. And it's this compromise that Christ condemns the church for. This group had entertained the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. In Numbers chapters 22 to 24, Balaam, the king of Moab, hired Balak to curse the nation of Israel. However, instead of pronouncing a curse on the Israelites, God intervenes and causes Balak to bless the Israelites. A few chapters later, in response to this, 
Balak then conspires to entice the Israelites into indulging in sexual immorality with Moabite women and eating food sacrificed to pagan idols. So just as Balaam had caused, and Balak had caused God's people to stumble in the Old Testament, here in Pergam, Pergamum, the Nicolaitans were doing the same thing. They were deceiving God's people. We don't know exactly what teaching the Nicolaitans advocated, but we know that it was similar in substance and or effect to the teaching of Balaam. Immorality and idolatry were the characteristics. Theologically, the Nicolaitans were antinomians. They were opposed to the law. Doctrine mattered little to them, and behavior mattered even less. And so within the church, they likely said, what the world is doing is okay. Participating in sexual immorality is okay. Participating in pagan rituals is okay. They had tried to ease the problem of living where Satan had his throne through compromise. Perhaps they thought this would make them more acceptable to the world, to the world or would make the church more attractive and more palatable to the culture. Either way, they had put acceptable labels on bad things. They neglected the command of Romans 12, verse 2, which says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Pergamum over-identified with the culture and had fallen foul of Satan's tactics. Satan was not trying to defeat the church from outside, but he used a strategy of friendly accommodation from within to corrupt the church with idolatry and with immorality and with lowered standards. The congregation had become welcoming and affirming to the sexually immoral and, the, and those who worshipped idols. And the connection here may not be perfect, but I think the point is clear that there are times when if the devil cannot kill a church, he will seek to join it. And so with each passing day, this distinction between church and world blurred yet further. The lifestyles of the two became indistinguishable from one another. Are there any ways in which this is the description of our church today? I pray that's not the case, but we must, as a church, grasp the severity of this warning against spiritual permissiveness. Only a few in the church in Pergamum had departed from the narrow path of orthodoxy, but the risen Christ, the chief shepherd of his flock, was grieved not only by the waywardness of this minority, but by the acceptance of the rest of the majority and their refusal, their refusal to challenge this. You see, when we compromise our morality, it will destroy our witness, and as we see in the exhortation to come, it invites the judgment of God. Daniel Aiken writes that these six verses in this letter are some of the most instructive verses to the church in the West today. As he says, the greatest threats to spiritual life and health are not opposition or persecution from the unbelieving, rather the toxin of compromise which sows seeds of destruction in the church. The church is in grave danger when it compromises truth to accommodate the culture and the world around it. As the world becomes more opposed to the church and Christian values, we must ask ourselves, does truth matter anymore? Christ's letter here to the church in Pergamum tells us that truth absolutely must matter to the church. And so, as we've seen just how serious this warning is, this becomes clearer all the more as we move into Jesus' appropriate exhortation. Verse 16 reads, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
This undiscerning tolerance had been the church in Pergamum's crippling defect. It was not a sign of their great relevance or their broad-mindedness or their ability to focus on the really important matters. It was the very thing that Jesus admonished them for. They were passionate and faithful, but undiscerning. There had been an attitude in the church of, don't take it too seriously. Don't rock the boat. The important thing is that we all love Jesus, so can we not just get along and not get too hung up on this? Perhaps there were some who wanted to stand firm in their faith but not appear too radical. And I think there's application here for us today. I think there's such similarity in what was happening in the church in Pergamum to the issues around family and sexuality in the church today and the ways in which many have succumbed to the societal pressures of the world in this and other areas. But it's not just in the big issues like this where we need to challenge our own permissive attitudes. Are there times when we find ourselves engaging in humor and in jokes that we know we shouldn't be a part of? What about the things that we watch, the films and TV shows, and the content in them which we're willing to excuse for the sake of our own entertainment? Would we watch them with Jesus in the room? It's a cliche, but would we? And more importantly, would we still be laughing? The legend tells it that there was a father of two teenage boys who uh, one day approached their dad uh, asking if they could rent, it's an old story, so they're still renting videos, um, we don't do that anymore, um, but asking if they could rent an 18 certificate video. And they built their case, they knew that their dad would be opposed to this, so they built their case. They had like a little list of pros and cons and they brought it to their dad and said, so we want to rent this, and here's why we want to watch it. Okay, we know that this language is used in it. We know that there's this scene where this person does this to this, and uh, we know that that's there, but it's got this actor in it, and it's really funny, and it's won this award, and it was directed by this guy. So we want to see all this stuff, and we're going to just turn our minds off to this. So their father says, okay, fair enough, give me 24 hours and I'll, yeah, I'll uh, assess your, your case, your pros and cons, and I'll come back to you with my answer. And the story goes that the next day, the father sits his two sons down and says, here we have this movie that you wanted to watch. I'm going to let you watch it if you eat this plate of brownies. So the two sons are thinking, great, brownies and a movie, brilliant. Um, and the dad begins to describe the brownies to his sons. He says, this is your mom's prized recipe. They're your favorite brownies in the world, okay? It's a perfect batch of her perfect brownies. She's gone to the shop. She's bought the really expensive chocolate. She's, bought not spare, she's not spared a penny on all of the ingredients, and she has made your favorite brownies. The only thing is, I've just put one teaspoon of the dog's poo into the brownie mix. Story goes that upon hearing this, the sons were, were less keen to eat the brownies and then watch the movie. You see, our standards, as we, as we encounter these things, can't be, this isn't too bad, or I can switch my mind off to this bit. But instead, the question we must ask is, what is this doing to my soul? What am I ingesting spiritually? What am I allowing myself to consume? 1 Peter 2.11 reads, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. See, the minority in Pergamum were missing this point, and they were asking the question, can I not just keep my head beneath the parapet? Because I know Jesus is Lord, so can I not just car away from the confrontation? Can I not just go along with the crowd? More than likely, the pressure of the culture around them 
was just too strong that they couldn't see past it. But whoever Antipas was, he put his head above the parapet. Antipas had stayed faithful and had not compromised the gospel. And this is what Jesus was looking for in his disciples in Pergamum and what he's looking for in his disciples here today. And so to this minority in Pergamum, Jesus is saying, you have given in to the world instead of confessing my name. And as a result, we see Pergamum was going to face judgment because it did not root out this permissiveness towards immorality, and it did not exercise discipline. Once again, in verse 16, we see the double-edged sword. We saw this in verse 12 as an encouragement. Jesus says, I have a sharper sword. I can vindicate you. In verse 16, however, the sword is a warning. Jesus is warning that this sharper sword that he has will be used against us if we remain permissive. He who has the sharp two-edged sword threatens to come to the church at Pergamum and wage war against those who have compromised and corrupted his church. The Lord is saying, you need to come back to holiness. If you don't deal with the sin in your church, I will deal with the sin in your church. What a frightening image this is, brothers and sisters. I think this is the side to Christ's majesty and glory that we don't dwell on enough. Quickly dispels any image of our kind of nice Western middle-class Jesus. What a picture it is of Jesus fighting the unrepentant in the church. And even more, how sad a reality that there are those who identify to some degree with the church who Jesus refers to as them. In a letter in which he is addressing the true church as you, he is singling out a you and a them. But this is how seriously the Lord takes the integrity, the holiness, and the purity of his church. And once again, it'll be the Word of God which shall overcome. See, God's way to overcome this error is the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Confronting error directly with truth is the only way to suppress it. We're not to accommodate it. We're to have no other weapon against culture and against permissiveness than the Word of God. But one day, this sword's this message of hope and truth, we're told, will change its function. It will become a message of judgment, and the sword to pierce the conscience will be the sword to destroy the soul. See, we must remember that God is going to hold us responsible to our reaction to whatever measure of truth we have received. To whom much is revealed much will be required. John 12, 48 reads, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has a judge. The word that I have spoken will be his judge on the last day. John Stott writes, Here Christ's saving word has turned judge. His wholesome sword has turned executioner. So let us beware of this warning and repent before we're condemned by it. Sadly, many of our churches today have gone the way of the church in Pergamum. They have in many cases attempted to serve God, but they've allowed cultural norms to shape their thinking and their lifestyles. And this is why it's so important especially with the bigger moral issues and complexities of life, to know where we are going to fall on these things before we find ourselves in the middle of them. Before we find ourselves under the pressures of emotion and experience and what society and others are telling us is okay. John MacArthur writes, today's non-confrontive church is largely repeating the error of the Pergamum church on a grand scale. And so the call to the permissive in the church today is the same as it was to Pergamum. 
a clear and urgent call to repent. The whole church was to respond to this command, not just the minority. More than vigilance against compromise was required at this stage, nothing less than repentance would suffice. Jesus here is providing us with the antidote to this lethal threat in our church. The risen and glorified Lord that we have seen in the previous chapter is giving us a clear instruction. Repent, confess your sin, and change your ways. At this point, Jesus has every right to judge but yet he extends another opportunity in his grace, his love, and his mercy to us. So often today, the church is afraid to talk about sin, never mind repentance. But in this call to repent, we see Christ with open arms inviting us back to him. And so as Christ begins to conclude his letter, we see that to those who hear and follow this command, we see the most incredible promises of blessing. Read with me verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Here is a promise to those who overcome, those who resist, who resist the temptation to compromise and those who repent from compromising. It's the promise of eternal life that we've seen in the previous two letters. And this is a promise for us just as much as it was a promise for Pergamum. And in this verse, Christ uses a lot of imagery, some of which is more straightforward and some which there's been a little bit more debate around, but simply, I think the promises of Christ can be categorized into three areas. Firstly, we'll see that he will sustain us. He will give us the hidden manna. This one has a simple explanation. As we know from the book of Exodus, manna was the heavenly food God provided for the children of Israel. And through this, he sustained his people, even though the nations around them did not know how it was happening. To the overcomer here, Jesus is promising the hidden manna, the proper and heavenly food for spiritual Israel, for us, his people. In contrast to the unclean food of the Balaamites, the pagan influencers in Pergamum, and to the world around us today, and while this promise is eschatological, it, it, it refers to the end times, the day when Christ returns, it also has application for us now. Jesus, the bread of life who knows where his people dwell, will graciously feed his people the spiritual nourishment they need to overcome all that they face now and then for eternity. If we remain faithful to the name of Christ, even where Satan dwells, Jesus says, I will sustain you. Secondly, he promises to receive us. We read that he will give us a white stone. Now, the white stone could mean a number of things here. At this time, a white stone would have been the means through which a juror would declare someone innocent. It could have been a means of invitation to something or a means of acceptance and also would have been used as a token of an honorable discharge from the military. But more likely, perhaps in this case, we can see it as a reference to the stones worn by the high priests of Israel in the Old Testament in the center of their breastplate. There's many plausible explanations here, but throughout them all, there is a pointing towards innocence, acceptance, and victory in Jesus Christ, our high priest. If we refuse to join the world in its wickedness, we will join, join God in his joy and his righteousness. He gives us this white stone 
to declare that he has accepted and received us, a gift which can never be taken away both now and when we experience the fullness of it in eternity. And thirdly, Christ promises to acknowledge us. On the stone there will be a new name which no one knows except who receives it. In Old Testament times, to know someone's name, especially that of God, meant to enter into an intimate relationship and even to share in their character or power. On this white stone which the high priest wore on his breastplate was engraved a name which nobody knew other than God and the one who was wearing it. And this was a picture or representation of the unique intimacy with God which only the high priest enjoyed. And this new status which Christ promises to us represents our final reward and the unique, complete relationship that we will one day experience with Christ. It's a sign of our genuine membership into the community of the redeemed and our identification and unity and intimacy with Jesus. We're to hold fast to this name because Jesus is holding on to us. As we've already read, if we do not deny the faith, he will not deny us. For those who overcome, he will be our food, our sustenance, both now and for eternity. He will be our entrance into heaven as our home, and he will give us his name. There is no acceptance in this world or anything that this world can offer that can ever compare to this. Have you ever compromised as a Christian? Maybe we have an area of our lives where we say, I would never compromise apart from here because it doesn't really matter. May we, through faithfulness to Christ's name, discover that this really does matter. May we discover just how much it matters when we choose to put our head above the parapet and not compromise, and we see that others in their guilty conscience see that the light of Jesus Christ has exposed them. And as Sinclair Ferguson says, they will see that the salt of a follower of Christ has been rubbed into the wound of their conscience. And even then, when we put our head above the parapet, Should the world choose to do us ill as a result of that, Jesus says, I know. I know where you are. I know where you work. And I know what you're going to face this week. Let us as a church repent for how we've compromised in the past because Jesus provides us with all of the encouragement we need. This letter, which starts with, I know where you dwell, ends with promises and assurances of God's favor and intimacy with Christ. Jesus is saying, I will bless you, I will show you my favor, and I will show you that you are mine. So then, he who has an ear, let him hear. Amen.